0: Hey, it's your host Omar, and welcome to the Curiosity Project. Today you are joining a conversation I had with Professor Charles Spence. He is an experimental psychologist at the University of Oxford. He is also the head of the Crossmodal Research Group, which specializes in the research about the integration of information across different sensory modalities. We discussed his research into multisensory experiences and the fascinating work he's been doing within molecular gastronomy and gastrophysics. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Professor Charles Spence, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you fantastic and just for uh, continuity on the episode would you like me to call you professor would you like me to call you charles would charles you is like fine to, me to call never. you charlie what what are we what are we working with him no, mr whatever, spence whatever no, charles, charles is fine <laughs> fantastic how's your how's your uh, how's your day been how's your uh, uh, week been previously i hope everything's well
1: yeah it's not too bad a bit busy for the end of term here in oxford but uh, otherwise good the sun is shining for a change today so
0: Amazing, and uh, for, 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 for people who haven't been lucky enough to attend uh, Oxford, what, what college are you at, what institute are you working in, and what does end of term Oxford look like?
1: Uh, so, I am at Somerville College, Margaret Thatcher once was, um, mm. teaching in the Department of Experimental Psychology. Um, and I've been here, what, oh, 26 years teaching now. Doesn't time fly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and were you uh, yeah, originally and,
1: and, uh, Yeah, I was uh, originally a student here even, even longer ago um, and so it probably takes me a little over three decades all, all told uh, in town and wow. uh, yes no, the end of term is um, yeah, lots of stressed students as they try and hand in their projects and their library dissertations and their experimental projects and such <laughs> like um, but uh, yes a little a few, a, few, uh, a, few, a few conferences on the horizon to get one out of town
0: Amazing. And, and what did you originally study? Uh,
1: philosophy and psychology. Fantastic. What was were the... the uh, they were, um, used to go to the local uh, lending library in Leeds when I was uh, a, a youth and, for whatever reason, take out the philosophy books one after <laughs> the other uh, and then sort of return them back next week unread because they're too, far too complicated. Right. Then, <laughs> almost, once I made my way through the philosophy books, then um, uh, the next thing on the shelf was psychology and uh, hmm. well, there you have it. Was that was
0: was that was that really the reason (laughs) why you why you did that? Wow. Okay. Um, Fair enough.
1: And sort of, uh, I guess the appeal was also that it felt like uh, other sciences. um, Everyone knew what was what. It was much harder to do anything original, whereas for psychology, it was a lot more up in the air. Mm. Things still being worked out. Perhaps because it's a newer science. Um, And yeah, uh, as it turns out, you have a much more chance, I think, to. Uh, challenge other people get into a good argument uh, without the need to require you know, huge amounts of expensive equipment or other stuff mm.
0: yeah no that makes a lot of sense i mean i i wonder what your what your opinion is on this uh charles i mean th- th- three decades later uh, you kind of went into psychology because a lot of the things are still up in the air do you feel as though that things are still quite up in the air and things are still very much up for debate um and kind of you know research and opinions and funding and stuff like that is still kind of in motion
1: uh certainly maybe for, but maybe for different uh, reasons i remember when i was um back in the 1980s you we were uh told don't do psychology it's what, sort of, what girls do when they want to do something scientific but don't know what <laughs> uh, so, not the right thing for boys um sort of ignored that advice um but that sort of notion it's not really very scientific is one that i think has changed uh, over the last three decades, in part because psychology has been kind of, I guess, uh, aligned itself with medicine and neuroscience, mm. and hence gained an air of respectability it might formerly once not have had. Um, so that's good. But on the other hand, these days um, it's hard. To, I guess many psychologists are in the midst of this sort of replicability crisis that runs through psychology, but also many other scientific disciplines and little bit hard to know what you can believe or what you can replicate and what you can't yeah so what, what's what's real what's true um is also causing some challenges i guess for uh, scientists who study the subject but that said there's still you know, plenty of stuff to um uh, address and i think progress is being made in some areas and and there are also you know, lots of areas where psychology has feared to tread thus far so mm-hmm. i think a lot of you know, my own work in in sort of food psychology, is an area that yeah, just wasn't on the map a decade or two ago, and has kind of exploded in recent years. And um, uh, as well as many other areas, are there for the for, um, for study and uh, exploration?
0: Absolutely, and I think exploration is kind of the the, the key word here, isn't it? It's it's um, it's one of those things as though you're embarking on a on a, on a journey almost. Uh, but before I ask you a bit more about your study in multisensory kind of psychology, um, I, I'd love to just kind of know, what what were the challenges when you first started psychology that psychologists were trying to, that were the kind of uh, the, the, the hot topics at the time, and how has that changed to today?
1: Uh, I suppose uh, um, uh, back in the 80s, there's probably a lot of talk about uh maybe the first wave, or an earlier wave of human-computer interaction, yeah was a big topic. Um, and that sort of fell by the wayside and disappeared from course here, as I guess it did elsewhere in the intervening decades, mm. only to come back these days with AI and big data and chat GPT and the like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you use chat, chat GPT? Of, What's your impression on it? I had a quick look at it the other day. Um, I am particularly interested in what it it can do in terms of a sort of recipe creation. (laughs) Mm, I'm not sure (laughs) yet, because of technology and taste uh, things. Uh, I know certainly the university is very worried about its uh, students writing their essays, and um, in fact, even scientists writing their articles based on (laughs) AI wording. Um, And I guess consciousness was there as a big topic in the 80s, Probably no closer to cracking it today than we were um, uh, then. And, um, yeah, probably very much the sort of, the, I guess, the metaphor of the uh, human mind or brain as kind of a computer. Mm. Um, which is probably you know, a step forward from the 50s and 60s when the brain was more, more thought of more like, I don't know, a tape recorder. <laughs>
0: mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Whatever technology you have at hand is kind of the one you use to think about and frame the one that you do not understand. Um, and and, and I, But I suppose back then it was also where I uh, came in very much a sort of sense-by-sense sense subject, the people mm. when I first arrived to teach back in Oxford, who'd been there when I was an undergraduate, decades before it has to be said, uh, about one um, <laughs> vision scientist studying the eyes and vision, what we can see and colour and so on. Um, and next door in the next lab was the hearing scientist studying what we can hear and so and these two people, both studying perception, both studying the senses, hadn't talked to each other for decades yeah. and sort of, you know, didn't think that they missed anything. So very sort of silos. Uh, and if you could find a touch researcher anywhere, then, again, they wouldn't really have much to say to a vision scientist or a hearing scientist. And, and no one even thought about studying flavour, the chemical senses. And so it was this very much segregation, as if the brain is so complex, perception is so complex, we couldn't possibly hope to study it all at once. Let's break mm-hmm. it down into little sort of bite-sized chunks, um, uh, and maybe we'll unravel its mysteries that way. Um, and what's changed, I think, is a sort of a growing realization just how multi-sensory the mind really is at all stages and wherever you look in the, in the human brain, and that you can only really understand uh, what it's like to perceive uh, if you think about you know how the senses are being brought together, combining, and what the rules the brain uses to to integrate the senses to give rise to those. You know, the sort of pleasurable percepts of everyday life, and in fact, when you think about it, you know all the you know, nearly all of life's most pleasurable experiences um, uh, are engage multiple senses.
0: Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I leave the audience to, to use their imagination. <laughs> there was a uh, just just for the audience, there was a glint in uh, in in your eyes while you said that, mm. so I think we can all we can all understand. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, but no, I mean, the one thing that's really quite fascinating to me, because as I've been diving a little deeper, because my, my, I, I don't have a science background, if that's not abundantly clear, um, but I, I do have an interest and a curiosity in kind of how things work around me, if that makes sense. Um, and as I've been diving deeper and trying to understand the science of how we work as a, as a human, how the, how the mechanics and the engineering of our build works, What's kind of uh, surprised me the most is how how little we've kind of uh, understood and how much we're trying to kind of break down. Uh, when I was recently trying to look into sleep science, which is a fairly new thing, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Professor Matthew Walker, mm-hmm. um, it kind of made me realize that, you know, something that we all take for granted dreaming, we don't really know what dreams are. We don't know why they're there. We... You know we're still trying to work that one out how they're created why they're created what's their purpose for, from an evolutionary perspective why do why, why are they there uh but something that i think we all think that oh well we dream so that's really just about it and sometimes we remember them sometimes we don't um but it's it's really fascinating to me and i mean if, was it that initial kind of uh, interest in something fairly basic and trying to understand how that affects us on a, on a neurological basis. Is that how you got into food psychology? Or is it just that you're a massive foodie?
1: No, uh, I guess I sort of started out um, uh, being interested in the senses and uh, applying the insights to the real world, uh, probably driven by uh, being an undergraduate spending more time on the, on the sports field and the croquet lawn and the squash court than, the, than, than in, the, in, the, in, the, in the psychology lab. I had to do a project, an experiment, and had left it too late, and uh, so I got sent off to some guy um, who ended up being my PhD supervisor as well, John Driver, um, who had a, was a DJ and had a broken uh, TV, and he had the sound coming through his... Uh, ended up being my PhD supervisor in the years following, John Driver. He was a DJ who had a broken TV, and uh, in his little, uh, you know, sort of studio flat uh, down the Cowley Road in Oxford, he would have the sound uh, from the TV coming out through his um, hi-fi and the speakers. Oh my God, okay. Um, as you could imagine, the scene uh, of him sort of, um, you know, getting, getting uh, 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 uh. a yeah, video cassette out from the local uh, lending libraries we used to do watch <laughs> a movie, um, and at the beginning of the movie, he'd have all the kind of the theme music, um, and everything would seem fine. Um, but then once that credits had rolled and the first person started to speak, it was like a, a, a disconnect when the voices weren't coming from the lips you could see on the TV screen. <laughs> they were coming from the loudspeakers that were somewhere else in the room. Uh, right,
0: so it's kind of like a weird dubbing situation. Yeah, yeah. And then a few seconds yeah.
1: later, uh, your brain kind of made sense of it all and suddenly it sounded like the voices were coming from the lips, after all. <laughs> kind of an <entriloquist>, dummy illusion. <laughs> uh, and so that got me interested in my first experiments so and then we were sort of breaking TVs and moving the sounds around and seeing what happened and what we could and couldn't do. Um, and that gave me an interest in the senses Um, and then uh, I guess I I was uh, followed a a, 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 a lovely young German lady off to Germany after my degree uh, and went to work in a human-computer interaction lab uh, building models of humans models of the early internet email systems, models of car interfaces and crew workstations on the European Space Shuttle um, and putting these things together to try and figure out which was the best design solution Mm. so um, uh, and that was sort of very applied research um, But it was not very scientific You'd have these models that would generate millions of numbers and no one could disagree with you But kind of to make your models you just used your intuition um, So ever um, no, since I've been trying to put those two things together in a way, sort of the um, application of, of, of the science of the senses to the real world mm. um, you know, As much to justify to my parents who never went to school who say, you know, what's the point? Right. What do you do? What do you mean they pay you for 18 lectures a year? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what's the use of all this uh, stuff? Um, to yeah. to them. Uh, and then ever since I've been sort of working in that line, starting with hearing and vision, and then adding a sense of touch a few years later. Uh, and then after that, um, I've always been funded by uh, industry, um, initially by Unilever for about 13 years. Um, wow. And initially they just said, well, we'll do whatever you want to do. Uh, it's interesting and then after a while we've got a problem with one of our products with our sort of fruit teas and they sort of drew me into the world of smell and taste which I'd never have gone into otherwise and certainly on an academic salary could never really afford to be a foodie anyway Um, and (laughs) it turned out even though you might not have thought as a psychologist that smell and taste were interesting senses to begin with once you start thinking about it it turns out they really are because maybe smell is the oldest sense we have it's the only sense in the brain that doesn't cross over from one side to the other in the brain. Whereas, you know, your right didn't hand, know that. you know, transmitted the information is transmitted to your left hemisphere and and your right ear will go to your left hemisphere. There is this kind of crossover. Have I asked you again?
0: Hi, sorry, your your, your connection Went just uh, totally dropped okay. out. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, the last thing that you said is is my your right hand. That's the last thing that you said.
1: So, um, you know, our senses cross over from uh, one side to the other as they go make their way to the brain. Our, uh, our right hand is processed by the sort of left hemisphere of the cortex. Um, our right ear projects to the left hemisphere. So, all the senses cross over except for smell, where your right nostril kind of goes straight back to the right side of your brain and, and vice versa. For the, to the left um, And so yeah this It turned out you know, the chemical sensors were really actually Kind of interesting and uh, No one else was really studying them um, Was sort of drawn in by accident By the Unilevers of this world And then after a few years Got introduced to um, uh, A chef Heston Blumenthal mm. um, And we started at, I started Going down to his restaurant He'd come up to Oxford and we did some experiments And um, that led into some You know Kind of creation of dishes inspired by the research that we've been doing on the sound of the sea for example um and yeah a whole new world was kind of opened up so having not been a foodie uh i of soon realised that you got to eat much nicer food if you worked uh on um with chefs out with some of their issues with some of their food products um i got introduced to um chef heston blumenthal and um uh, got him an invitation down to the Fat Duck restaurant in Bray, um, mm, the to number so one restaurant he had, in the world. It wasn't quite at that stage, he hadn't quite reached his uh the heights of fame, uh, but yeah, it was still uh up and coming uh restaurant, and mm. uh, and I sort of you know, it, it soon realized that even though uh, maybe I hadn't been interested so interested in food previously, you got to eat much nicer food. Working with chefs than you ever did, um, and uh, yeah, so kind of you know the, the, certainly much nicer food than you'd ever get at a psychology meeting or conference. Yeah,
0: meeting. I can imagine.
1: Um, and also um, through the collaboration uh, emerged some experiments, which some of which led to be the inspiration for dishes such as the Sound of the Sea dish that became the signature dish on the restaurant menu, based oh, on wow. an experiment that Heston and I had done in here in Oxford um, uh, with about 150 people at a conference feeding them oysters and playing the sounds of the sea or farmyard chicken noises and, and showing mm. that the oysters tasted significantly better but no more salty the sounds of the sea than chickens. I um, <laughs> led into the sound of the sea dish after a couple of years and, uh, and I sort of you know, soon realised that even though I myself had not formally been that interested in smell and taste, and it's kind of hard to deliver the stimuli because you, know, you can't... Deliver them from a computer, so you've got to make stuff, wash stuff up. Yeah, your subjects get full and adapt, uh, adapt to foods. Um, nevertheless, you know some of these chefs, uh, like Heston, and more recently working a lot with Joseph Youssef in London, they're able to take the science right. of the senses and you know turn it into delicious, memorable dishes. And um, an innovation seems to happen much faster with a chef who may hopefully be their own boss and if they believe or find interesting. Uh, so even though I had not necessarily been interested from a scientific perspective uh, in studying food um, previously, having been brought into the space uh, through working with Unilever, who were funding the lab, um, and thereafter being introduced to chefs like Heston Blumenthal um, and more recently uh, Joseph Huser from Kitchen Theory in North London, I soon sort of realised how um, uh, the best chefs could take the science of the senses. And if they're inspired by the ideas, the findings, they could turn them into delicious, memorable, stimulating, exciting dishes and sell them to their guests you know, almost in almost in no time at all and That was a real contrast from my previous work working with you know with car companies and the like, or big organizations, even with the Unilevers, where even if you had the dream result you're always looking for, nevertheless it might take five, ten, fifteen, twenty years for that finding insight to make it into a high street car, say. That you could buy, um, whereas you know the, the chefs, they can put something on the menu next week. So they're their own boss, and you have real people paying real money for real kind of experiences, um, and it can really turn the science into something of delicious and exciting. And that was uh, that, that much more rapid innovation uh, was something that uh, you know, has kept me in the space ever since. Amazing, amazing, and
0: I, I think before I kind of delve a little bit deeper into the into the into the food sciences that you kind of or the. Uh the food psychology rather that you uh, kind of uncovered in, and realized because there's some really fascinating things that I've actually tried myself after reading the book <laughs> gastrophysics which is a must read as far as I'm anyone who's serious or even interested in food it's definitely a must read it's beautifully written and some really interesting and actually as far as I was concerned initially some silly things that I thought were you know just uh, nonsense really but when you try it it and you do it with an open mind, damn, you know, it, it works. Um, <laughs> but I, I wonder, because a, a friend of mine is, uh, is, is actually currently studying uh, at Oxford, is doing a PhD, mm-hmm. and we were having a conversation about funding, mm-hmm. uh, about how difficult it is uh, for funding. And I, I wonder, how did you go about, and how would you, for anyone who's listening uh, who may also be encountering this issue, uh, how do you go about it and how, how would you recommend people, you know, a young, yeah. enthusiastic scientist or researcher to go about gaining funding?
1: So it's a tricky issue, funding these days, and uh, I suppose my own trajectory has been somewhat different from uh, most of my academic colleagues in that um, I've virtually had n- no state government research council funding at all, in the last 26 years, Right. And I'm currently standing at um was it 36 European Union grant applications in a row all rejected oh my god uh, never got been successful there um and so I, all my funding has come through industry instead um and in part that sort of played to my interest in the more applied side of research and in part I can never really get my head around this notion that for traditional grant applications you need to write a year in advance what you'll be doing six years hence down to every quarter i'll be doing this oh is that's that it. right yeah and you have scant charts which say every every for every quarter for the next five years when the grant if it is uh, awarded what you'll be doing what you'll be studying what you'll be writing um so it's all planned out uh, and for me that just takes away completely from the sort of spontaneity mm. uh, of research where um through other sources of funding i've been lucky enough that you know if somebody comes through the door who can do something interesting with some interesting idea or make stuff, then we can do an experiment on it because that's what's interesting today and I don't need to say no, you know, come back and see me in five years' time when I've got a spot in there. <laughs> uh, and so um, and for me it's worked having having you know, virtually only industry funding. Um, it comes with sort of different kind of constraints in a way that maybe uh, industrial funders might be much more strict about deadlines and deliverables than I find with some regular academic product projects um but then the question becomes from colleagues who are interested in that route saying well okay h- h- how do you get in touch with the companies how do you um do you, you give them a call on the helpline or something or uh, to which i'd say you know i think it's impossible i've never managed to make it through myself from the outside to find the right person who might have the purse strings and the interest in whatever it was that i was doing uh it's always been the other way around that companies have come as a result of either seeing what we we're presenting at an academic conference or more often you're know, hearing about it in the newspapers or, or somewhere instead um, and that has sort of worked uh, for me uh, for other colleagues yeah, it is um, it is tough um, and uh, I mean, so, yeah, in a way I've also made sure to try and um, to do cheap research Mm. Anyway, in which doesn't make me very necessarily very popular with the head of department and such like who, who likes <laughs> all the overheads from the grants but but uh, you know there is some research work you can do with virtually no money um and so we sort of got enough funding from industry projects and that's left over enough to keep the lab running um and then gives us the opportunity to work with chefs and baristas and mixologists who even if they've got any money certainly wouldn't give it to you for research mm. uh but that allows the space to play and uh, sometimes to talk about the findings and um, and that sort of model has worked, yeah, uh, very well, and uh, hopefully it should be able to for, for some others, especially in this era of you know growing impact. Because you know when I started getting money from um, industrial funders was kind of sneered at. You only do that right. if you're not clever enough to have the real academic theoretical you know, research councils funding. Mm. Uh, whereas today, with a shifting focus. Uh, of funding decisions partly being based on impact, how much real will impact does your research actually have, then suddenly these industrial uh, projects become much more valuable and highly regarded than they were formerly. And and in many cases, I found, you know, there are things that you couldn't do otherwise if it weren't for somebody. Um, So when the chef comes to the door and says, I want to do some research, I want to be the chef in residence. That's great because we can't cook like the chef can. But he can't do statistics like our in-house statistician can. You put them right. together, and suddenly you've got a great research product that's never been done before. Or when a typeface designer comes along, or a plate maker, or a potter, or a perfumier, a chocolatier. Suddenly, that's when the magic happens. Sort of putting people together who have these very different expertise. Um, very often in in sort of in, in research that is hopefully not too uh, resource demanding.
0: Yeah yeah I th- I, I, it's it's interesting because like again it's kind of a world that i don't really understand very well is the world of funding and the and you know the mm. struggles that that young researchers and scientists are having to find in terms of mm. particularly i think government uh government grants um uh I, I do know that there's a lot of conversations going on right now uh hopefully for the better but we'll we'll, we'll see i guess mm. uh but uh, but no Uh, I I think you know it's it's great that the industry has kind of recognised the value that someone like yourself can 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 add and have decided to really get behind that. Um, I recently had an experience uh, with a dear friend of mine. Um, He runs a company called Cocoa Runners. I don't know if you've heard of them.
1: Okay. No. Uh, It's a
0: craft chocolate company. Okay. Um, I recently became very interested in chocolate Mm -hmm. and thought, well, actually, I think the world is a bit better than than lint. Um, and I should maybe open up uh, my, my eyes to it. So I got in contact with a friend of mine who I know runs this company and does very, very well, and he, he really does great in championing some of those uh, craft chocolate brands, mm-hmm. and we did a tasting together. And he brought up a really interesting thing that I wanted to ask you, which was the difference between taste and flavour. Um, and I and I wonder what what's your what's your impression of that? What what do you feel as though is there a difference between taste and flavour? And what do you feel as though mm-hmm. that it is?
1: So uh, having spent now I guess twenty years studying taste and flavour, uh, initially with some um, Pringles potato chips and our ignoble winning <laughs> silly science uh, findings uh, enhancing crunchiness through sound, I spent a lot of time thinking about taste and flavour. And I guess uh, it sort of depends who uses the term uh, as to whether they mean the same thing or something different. Mm. To the scientist uh, studying flavor, then taste is the term you use only for that which you get from the tongue, uh, mm. from the taste buds—so sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami. Um, whereas flavor is kind of the what you also get largely from the nose, from the volatile rich air that comes out of the back of the uh, uh, of the mouth. Um, uh, and a way to distinguish them in everyday experience is either just put get a nose clip or hold your nose closed as if you're going deep sea diving and to taste something and say, what do you actually taste literally on your tongue? And normally it's a very thin experience. I do it with jelly beans around being naughty, you know, sort of Harry, was it Harry Beanbot? Uh, yeah, Harry yeah, Potter yeah, once. Jelly Belly or something. Um, yeah. But the ones that have a nice flavour and a horrible flavour and you can't tell from the colour which one's which. Some ear wax or vomit. Or, oh, um, the
0: the bean boozled. I yeah, think yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so and they have an audience block their nose up, taste one of these uh, jelly beans, um, and all they can taste is sweet. Maybe a bit of acidity, nothing more. And then when they let go of the nose as they're chewing, suddenly there's ah ah going around the room. As people get the chocolatey, they get the vomit. <laughs> they get that's more of an urgh, actually than the yeah, 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 yeah. Um, or they get the fruity, they get the citrus, the vanilla. Uh, and again, just like uh, all those years ago with a TV set with the sound that started out somewhere else and ended up being ventriloquized onto the lips of the speaker on the screen. Um, within a few seconds, in our, our experience, suddenly the taste appears to be coming from our mouth again, not from our mm-hmm. nose. Um, so I think it's our brain playing sort of trick of ventriloquizing the smells where maybe 75 to 95% of what we think we taste is really coming from the nose, it's ventriloquizing to the mouth and because we think we localize it where that food or drink is in our mouth, then we say, "Yep, yeah, that must be taste." Um, but of course, in everyday language, uh, we're not all scientists, and uh, so when we say, "I love the taste of this" or "I love the taste of that," um, what we're really referring to is the flavour mm. of the thing. Uh, and what we, you know, what English does not have, but some other languages uh, perhaps do, is you know, "I love the flavour of this." Mm. One of my suggestions that wasn't picked up from the gastrophysics book, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. we live in hope. <laughs> <laughs> um and say so, yeah, I think there is an important difference and it's all you know uh, one of the maybe enduring mysteries is how it is that our brain manages to fool us in a way to trick us to convince us that we are tasting on our tongues in our mouths when there's a little bit of exploration with that with the, with a clothes peg lets us see that really it's you know mostly of what we're smelling so that's why you know the fruity the floral the herbal the burnt the, meat, the meaty the creamy that's all coming from the nose uh wow. we love the taste of those things um but yeah it's really a s- aroma
0: and and from fr- from your research uh, charles h- how have you decided to take this research so in terms of the kind of relationship between the would i be correct in referring to it as the olfactory system right the yeah, yeah. The, the 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 sinuses the nose the mouth yes. it's all part of the same kind of thing right
1: um, well, it gets into kind of a philosophical question pretty quickly. Um, in a sense, you know, I can say my, my tongue is is the organ of tasting, giving me these five basic tastes, mm. the savage stuff. My nose gives me volatile, thi- volatile chemicals that are, you know, light enough or to make it into the air, and the atmosphere. And uh, and, uh, so in a sense, we've got two separate sense organs, uh, at least two. Um, some would say, well, when we sniff like the bistro kid and we inhale the aromas around us, that's ortho nasal smelling. But when mm. we're chewing and eating and drinking, then the aromas get pushed out of the back of our nose, and that's retro-nasal smell. Right, so, right, um, right. But, but, but thinking about that retro-nasal smell coming out of the back of your mouth as you chew and swallow foods, where seventy-five to ninety-five percent of the taste resides, then in a sense, you know, um, people like uh, what's he called, J.J. Gibson in the sixties, and others would sort of think of, or even Brillat um, Savarin in the eighteen thirties, gastronome famous in France would say, no, this is really the organ of tasting. It's all part of the mm. same thing, your nose and the mouth. And, and they're both of those organs are really trying to do the same job of figure out what is nutritious, energy-dense, what should I eat and what should I avoid because it might be poisonous. So mm. in that sense, it is, to some people at least, one and the same sort of tasting organ.
0: OK, sure, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I recently got into, um, uh, just from a pure fascination perspective, uh, and also an experiential um, uh, feeling is uh, cigars um and th- that whole thing of of uh retro hailing is what i think uh, cigar aficionados, whatever that means mm-hmm. uh call it which is you take a puff of a cigar and to really experience the flavor of that cigar you push a small amount of smoke through your nose mm-hmm. um and it's interesting to me because it's almost as though that you could that both organs seem to be constantly engaged and as you say trying to work out is this thing sour? Does that mean it's going to kill me? Maybe I should. Maybe I should spit it out. Mm. Is it sweet? That means it's very nice. It's ripe. Mm. It's probably going to be good for me, mm. and I should swallow it. Um, but it's interesting when you can play around with uh, how much each organ uh, is engaged, because uh, they're both clearly engaged. But it's interesting when you can control that, and I've 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 learned that also through your book uh, and through some of your research. Mm. Um, and I wonder, this this kind of realization of both of these two organs that work together, and also we'll get into this, the sound aspect and, and color as well, which is a really interesting one for me. And I really thought it was ridiculous when I read it. I thought this is absolute hooey, but uh, it, it, it really does work. Um, how have you decided, in particular with the with the smell and the taste, how have you decided to take that and implement that in the fine dining experience? And mm-hmm. how can people take that? and try that out at home
1: Mm -hmm. Um, so there are a number of ways we sort of think about uh, using smell olfaction uh, in order to enhance uh, food and drink experiences Um, I mean on the one hand you might think just for an everyday perspective if I buy it that 75 to 95 percent of taste comes from the nose uh, and certainly, you know, when you have a head cold or if you've had uh, COVID, your nose is blocked and then you can't taste anything, you say. When yeah. reason, mostly the smell that's gone. Um, if that's true, really true, then why on earth would you ever drink a cup of coffee with a plastic lid on it again? Because that's why you the smelling. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I
0: take them off every time for that particular reason. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and, and, you know, and, and does it really make sense to drink anything with a straw? Because then again, you're taking your nose away from the from the aroma of the thing. Um, so those are kind of the, the, some of the bad things that currently we do without really realising um, the importance of smell. I think also... I think, you know, I think you...
0: actually, uh, Charles, for, for the coffee thing, I think it's probably a good thing, so depending on where you buy your coffee from, I think it's a good thing to have that plastic lid on there. <laughs> it sh- shields you from the horror of what you're actually drinking.
1: <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I mean, coffee's one of the... Well, actually, interestingly, one of the only foods that maybe sometimes smells better when you sniff it the freshly ground beans and when you taste it sometimes yeah. it's disappointing so it maybe best to live in that world of your you know freshly ground smell uh <laughs> in some cases um and, and when you see you negative know, restaurants and you see you know these hot plates of steaming food coming from the kitchens to your table and you think that's the 75 to 95 percent right there it's evaporating into the air you know bring it back mm. i want it um <laughs> so how, how do you design differently to maximize that um and that might be with chef jose for example you have a dish with kind of like a modern version of a cloche, one of those silver uh, um, domes you put over a dish to keep it warm Mm. and maybe to keep the fragrance in. Um, He serves a a, a dish in a plastic bag and then he comes to the table and slices it open in front of the diners and suddenly you get this burst of aromatic uh, air over uh, uh, the dish to really maximise that moment. Um, We work also in um, thinking about adding scent to the table, to the environment, on top of the dish. There are people now who are making... Uh, sort of food grade perfumes um, work with a lady in Italy and she's got you know uh, fresh brioche uh, wow. baked bread and uh, sorrentine lemons and some of these aromas have been spritzed over dishes uh, at the table or at you know at the bar for some cocktails um, we think about also uh, yeah I was just doing a, a multi-sensory dinner with some students over in uh, the Netherlands uh, a week ago today um and there for the bread course um people could have some bread and if you wanted to have the rosemary bread then it was you know te- put out your hand please and the waitress sort of rubbed a little bit of um uh, uh, rosemary aroma sprayed it on your hand uh so uh, you got the rosemary but it came from your hand rather than the bread um yeah and through to i see you know, the emergence of these kind of uh augmented uh plateware cutlery everything from the drink right cup and other sort of um, bottles and cups that are colored to look like very flavorful and you can pour your water into it and supposedly they're also impregnated with the aroma of fruit or strawberry apple lemon or something right. uh we have the molecular forks which are kind of forks where you can there's a little hole near the tines that you might stick in your mouth and you put a piece of filter paper on that with a few drops of truffle oil or basil or whatever it might be and again against the, sort of the designers I think uh thinking about how to optimize uh tasting experiences the key part that smell plays um and I think you know, many of these things people can do uh, in their own uh home um you know from just thinking about how how, how bad it is you know, one of the things that's wrong with a microwave oven I guess is it gives you none of the aroma, none of the anticipation, none of the food cues that you would normally get if you're baking bread or roasting something. And those olfactory cues are part of the experience. Uh, so what can you do to sort of, you know, maximise those? What sort of fragrant, you know, flowers or herbs can you put on the table again? to Or what other sort of, you know, scents can you spray over diners? And um, yeah, there's lots of fun to be had in this sort of almost creating flavours and taste in a whole new way. Um, and then possibly it'll have a, I think, a. Um, we're currently most interested in the sort of health and, and, and wellness angle because, you know, coming back to uh, kind of the chocolate you mentioned a little earlier, mm. the, um, that often, you know, will smell of, taste of vanilla and that's a delicious note. Uh, but that vanilla is actually a very sort of bitter bean if you bite into one, mm. Um but we always associate vanilla with sweetness mm. uh, and that seems to be true across the world it's probably perhaps the world's most liked smell from cross-cultural researchers it's also a very sweet smell to us um, and if you add that to foods and to drinks then it will help to make whatever you're tasting sweeter mm. perhaps in part why we add vanilla you know to ice cream because ice cream is very mm. cold so your taste buds aren't really working but with the if you can get some of that vanilla aroma then you will taste the sweetness it's coming through your nose rather than through your mouth and I just think what what the possibilities here are could we create you know low uh sugar beverages or foods by combining different sweet aromas like vanilla Mm. and strawberry and caramel and who knows what else um and uh yeah it will be you you, I the consumer will say gosh this this tastes as sweet as I like yeah little will you know that in fact it's some of the tricks of the brain being put to play there um, and the sweetness you taste maybe as much from your nose, and what you smell, than what's actually happening at the taste buds.
0: And have you have you actually conducted research into that? And if you have, what what have you what have you found? Is this something that can actually work?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, we and a number of others have have been looking at well, technical term, odor-induced taste enhancement. O-I-T-E mm. for short. We, we um, all need an abbreviation, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> an acronym. Um, and so yeah, an acronym, on that. sorry. Um, uh, and uh, we've done studies over in a project um, funded by uh, a lot of Danish uh, drinks companies from from the alcohol ones, from the Carlsbergs to the fruit juices. Uh, and we've been working with them trying to, based on the gastrophysics, trying to design new beverages that build on this science of O-I-T-E and we're able to show you know we could get a 10% increase in perceived sweetness of this lower sugar drink by using pomegranate uh, aroma Mm. and if we combine that sweet aroma in the drink with some sweet sonic seasoning or a pink colour then we could sort of layer these effects up and get maybe a 20% increase in perceived sweetness by combining a sonically sweet soundscape at the time of tasting with the pomegranate sweet uh, aroma
0: fascinating. no, it makes perfect sense to me because it's I, I guess it's something that I've uh, habitually done with people who because I, I like drinking my coffee black uh, i I don't enjoy it with milk very much. Um, I enjoy filter coffee and particular coffees from Ethiopia and Kenya the kind of it's it's interesting because in the coffee world we we, we believe acidity mm-hmm. to be sweetness. Uh, which is uh, interesting the way that that kind of blends within each other uh we we take the acidic nature of an Ethiopian coffee uh, we call that a stone fruit uh, flavor and that immediately means it's sweet uh when it's not it's actually kind of a bit sour and a bit mm. uh, a bit acidic uh, but that's meant to be sweetness but it's it's interesting kind of I think the the vernacular of trying to attach words with particular flavors I think the wine world uh kind of... Uh, struggles a bit with that as well and maybe Ooh. have gotten gotten it down to a bit more of a tea but definitely still struggles with it uh, and I know that the, the the world of cigars as well really struggles with that. Uh, there's some people that will smoke a cigar and say taste of strawberry cheesecake which is insane. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's definitely weird but um, uh, one thing that I will do is I will always discourage people from having sugar. In their coffee, because I think if if a, if a grower or a or a roaster has spent so much time and effort trying to achieve a particular flavour profile, you really don't want to augment that too much. Um, and I just think there's something kind of uh, you know weird about adding sugar to to great coffee. So mm. what I will do is I'll kind of ask, "Listen, would you like to put any of these syrups in there? The pure uh, syrups, and uh, you know, if you've ever had caramel syrup, it's actually fucking horrendous." You know, it's, it's, it's not nice at all. It tastes burnt and weird and kind of nasty on its own. Um, but when you add it to a liquid, it does give this weird kind of aromatic... It, it doesn't really taste of anything in a liquid. Um, but it does give this aromatic kind of thing which makes you think of waffles. Uh, and,
1: are, and, and, are you, and, and are you allowed to do this? Given that you just said, you, you, you know, if, if, if the grower or the roaster yeah, have done all yeah, this work... Yeah, that, yeah,
0: it's, 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 it's a very good point. I, I kind of... I. I justify it to myself by the fact that the syrups that I use are organic, so rather than highly processed white sugar. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah, so it's 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 interesting actually how that works. I've tried that myself with caramel syrups and mm. vanilla syrups and stuff like that, and you can't taste the syrup um, if you put a few drops in there, but you can definitely smell it, mm-hmm. uh, and it does give this kind of illusion of, of sweetness. It's yes. very fascinating.
1: Mm um yes yeah uh, i i did have, have something to say there uh yeah i've been doing a lot of, quite a lot of in fact uh i've been working with a, um, a brazilian uh a lady Fabiana Cavallo. so we doing lots of studies on coffee over the last couple of years um and using a, a very interesting um substrate uh mm. whether whether you know i do think you know to a sense we do not to this question of are you allowed to adapt, augment, modify, come between the creator, the grower, the blender, uh, and the consumer by augmenting that, you know, that, or should you know, should these things speak for themselves? Uh, crops up also in, in in our wine work, and we have you know masters of wine saying, you know, why do you need to match the music to the wine if you don't yeah. like the wine in the first place? Just you know, get a different one. Right. Um, uh, but the wine should speak for itself and you shouldn't be playing with a you know the acidity sweetness balance uh um through, through music and so on um but i want to say on the other hand you know in fact no we we're not all the same we do live in very different taste worlds and it is sort of bizarre coming the other from the other side to think that you know um it would make no sense for us all to wear the same size shoes because our feet are different sizes sure to me, i think you know our tongues our tasting apparatus is equally Distinct one individual to the next. Uh, and it's sort of a, mi- a mystery why it is that we think we should all like the same stuff. So, in that sense, if we do live in different taste worlds and some people, maybe super tasters, a third of the population who have uh, perhaps far more taste buds and experiences with bitterness to a greater extent, then if the grower or the roaster or the, or the coffee blender is a non taster, maybe they're creating a profile that works for their taste world. but. They can't guarantee it will work for all of their customers because we do divide super tasters, non-tasters, medium tasters, and hence maybe there's a space there for mm. modification.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree. I mean, you know, as, as someone who initially kind of started your uh, your research in the world of kind of sound and uh, I, I guess using hi-fi apparatus and stuff like mm. that, like I'm I'm a massive hi-fi lover, and and kind of an analogy that I, or an example that I like to use is you know um it, i i recently started exploring the world of tea uh, mm-hmm. i don't drink uh so i have always been looking for kind of uh you know alcohol alternatives mm-hmm. and unfortunately most of the alcohol alternative that are kind of you know uh no and low champagne and wines and stuff are not very nice mm-hmm. I, I don't really like most of them to be honest uh, so i decided to look into the world of single batch teas and Uh, I recently found out that drinking tea out of a wine glass is actually a really good thing and it makes it taste extraordinary and it kind of gave me the example of the wine glass almost acts like a loudspeaker for the tea and the shape of the wine glass is the EQ settings uh, of that particular Mm -hmm. tea. So you, you are already modifying it in that way. The same way of which that playing a particular piece of music or the plate being a particular type of color or having a spritz of, you know, lemon zest or whatever it is over your food is almost an, an equalizing effect of just making of heightening that experience to that individual that may need particular aspects of the experience heightened. Um, so, yeah, I think is it is it modification or is it tuning? I think is. Kind of mm-hmm. the, the, the the thing that kind of makes you know a bit <laughs> yeah, uh, could,
1: could, uh, yeah, uh, subtle distinction, probably there's one in there somewhere. Um, I think you know the tea is also interesting to me. Well, on the one hand, I did go to the recently to the low and no alcohol uh, beverage summit, mm, so I was subject I've to all manner of things. Um, yeah, and anything good? Uh, increasingly, it can be harder and harder to tell. Yeah, uh, so I, do, I was forced into blind tastings of you know alcohol. Tea and <laughs> regular beers and you couldn't tell um but also i had um sparkling tea yes the concept it was actually very
0: it's good it's very it? low
1: alcohol and um, some of those were very very nice and again they were sort of borrowing from the world of wine because they were they were sold in champagne bottles it looked like in a that yeah. form that's already making that connection um and yet for some reason you know, there's so much study on the world of wine wine glasses uh bottles and some uh, increasingly w- w- work on, on coffee but teas sort of been left behind for some reason weird but it, isn't it? why the, do the, why do you feel that is um i do not know actually um it's yeah because
0: uh, i've been trying to rat- rattle my brain cells on that yeah. and i just i i can't come to an answer
1: yeah. uh, uh sometimes it can be about the sort of the the the, the the structure of the industry itself whether it's sort of small producers or multinationals who are providing the stuff sometimes explains why some drinks have research and others don't um uh, yeah it's a, it's a mystery so we we're, we're, we're seeing a gap in the market as it were and trying to do stuff now on um teaware on mm. on um uh and uh, so the, the idea of drinking your, your tea from the, from the wine glass. Um, Have you ever come across
0: a gentleman called Jamil Lalani, by any chance? Yes, yes, yes. Years ah. So yeah.
1: I've, been, been, I've, had, I've had a tea tasting with him down in uh, London. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Because he's the guy that got me into tea. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. And uh, and I'd be very interested because we did a lot of research on sort of the shape of cups, beer, glasses, wine glasses, wine um, glasses and uh, how much of the tuning or modification that putting a tea in a wine glass has is down to the shape of the glass, the thickness of the the lip, and there's something about, you know, for many many food and drink items, the heavier the cup, the glass, the plate, the bowl, the cutlery, the better the taste experience, whereas tea seems to be, you know, maybe wine, the opposite, that it's sort of thin and light.
0: Kind of disappears almost.
1: Yeah. Um, And so is there some sort of, correspondence or match between these uh, lighter more elegant uh, aromas you might get in a tea and it matches a light elegant thin rimmed just you know some you know, lots stuff to be explored there and um, we started just doing some stuff with colleagues in in in, in China around just sort of tea color you have your your red tea your white tea mm. your black tea your green tea but then the red tea isn't necessarily all that red <laughs> uh, and when you blindfold people and give them these different colored teas and say you know what colour do you think the tea you're drinking now is? Yeah. Quite often they come up with a colour that's different from the one that um that uh uh, uh is, is actually the case. So yeah, a lot a lot of research to be done. Um, and even going back, in fact, as a, a student here in Oxford uh, Melody, who's just doing a PhD on uh ancient Chinese tea ware. Mm. Uh, and if I get it right, um there it was the receptacles they used to drink more wine or something like that or soju or some some other sort of alcoholic spirit and mm. they had all their sort of receptacles for that and then they switched to drinking tea but then all of kept the, the receptacles yeah so sure. what is it doing to the thing and um uh we'd like to go back and if we can get our hands on some of the items in the yeah. in the uh in the in the museum here in Oxford, the ashmolean then to try yeah yeah, yeah. um that so yeah so yeah, a long history a lot, a lot of interest and in, you know, bizarrely ignored um i mean i mean coffee I mean there's very until we started working on the on the sort of science of the coffee cup and its color its shape its material its texture yeah. um there had been nothing you know thousands of studies of the, of, of the of the volatile properties of coffee and probably there are of tea as well chemical composition mm-hmm. but no one really studying the the science of, of how it makes its way to your uh, to your mouth and both from the from the drinking vessel, because there's always there, always there always is a drinking vessel, um, a cup, a can, a bottle, a, a glass. Just no one ever studied it, but it does have an impact. Through to that, I guess in, in the world of tea, there's also a lot more ceremonial. Mm. And Mr. Uh, what was his name again? I forget. His, um, Jamil Jamil Lalani. Uh, he, he's you know when I, when I when I had a tea session with him a few years mm-hmm. ago, going back 15 years or something now. Then you know that whole sort of tea ceremony. There is a kind of a sensory element, and in a way, a bit like perhaps a bit more like wine than coffee, kind of a sensory approach. And if you go back and look at some of those Chinese or Japanese tea ceremonies, it's a very multi-sensory thing. And that is all part of the experience too. Um, And maybe sort of organised through convention and history and culture, but uh, to come back at it with a modern eye and say, you know, Let's break this down into what it's doing for each of our senses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah first yeah. look at the tea, then smell it, then you know, get rid of the first batch and only taste the second and um setting expectations, using the power of aroma to enhance maybe the taste experience. Um
0: No, it's it's it, it is quite fascinating, kinda of when you look back in history, there are practices. Uh and I'm sure the I, I I you know, look, I don't it's 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 a weird thing if I if I talk to someone like Graham Hancock uh he'll probably say that they were far more advanced in their science than we are today <laughs> but um but uh you know let's let's kind of uh, uh potentially look at the reality of the situation they were probably just practicing things just to make the situation a bit nicer and a bit more uh special i guess yeah. uh, when you look at the japanese tea ceremonies it was normally presented by a very beautiful woman uh typically to men um you know, all of the equipment used was all very, very beautiful gold and beautiful ceramics. They would typically use sound and integrate sound within their preparation as mm-hmm. well. So they, they kind of knew that they had to make it special and make it an event and make it a ceremony. And I think those ceremonious things in terms of sound, uh, you know, sight and and smell, they didn't really understand what they were doing, but they understood that it was mm-hmm. making the person feel good about the whole thing. And um, like, that
1: intuitive, intuitive approach, where, yeah, where often gets to uh, good, great solutions, and then as sort all of the science comes around, uh, years, decades, millennia later, and sort of breaks it down and figures out why that might be the case. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah then hopefully, by figuring out the why's, then you might say, okay, given that those stereotypical sensory elements of the tea summary work so well for tea, what would happen if we could we translate them to a coffee tasting? Or are those beverages so different, and if so, why that it wouldn't work in the same way? I mean, maybe for me, I think for coffee, it's sort of interesting that it, well, you you may correct me on this, but it all looks like black. There's not much going on visually for the color of it compared to a wine, compared to a tea.
0: The the variation you get is is very different. So
1: that's almost in a way that coffee forces you into a different kind of sort of sensory hierarchy or dominance. and it, and it wouldn't make so much sense to say look at your coffee you know mm. can you see the the the, the vintage or the uh, how hot the <laughs> summer was or the side of the slope that, that the beans were grown on mm.
0: yeah I, th- I think in terms of coffee like i think first and foremost a distinction needs to be made are you talking about filter or Are you talking about espresso so i think for me i think that the 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 true heightened nature of what coffee could potentially be is is through a paper filtered coffee uh, gets rid of the of the body of the coffee and provides you with with essentially what the taste would be or the flavor uh, and also heightens those aromatic those, those volatile aromatic compounds because the there's not a layer of oil on top of the coffee which is blocking those uh, those aromatic compounds coming out. Um, so for me actually when you look at the Japanese style of coffee, which is the paper filter, it's very ceremonial they make a big deal of it it's very ceremonial it takes a long time it takes about five to six to seven minutes sometimes um and it's quite graceful and almost kind of dance-like in its preparation and they always serve it in glass cups and i think that's the thing that i always tell my friends to do is is don't drink coffee in something like that in a mug Mm -hmm. um drink it in a double-walled uh cup uh, because depending on your bean, you will get slight. You're totally right, uh, Charles. That you know when you when you make a white tea or a or a black tea, there's a there's a big fucking difference. Uh, you don't need to hold it up to a to a light to see the difference. But when you do hold up a beautiful, well-made, you know, uh, coffee from Colombia, which will be darker, or regardless of the roast level, um, or an Ethiopian, which will be very light and almost purplish in color, it's a, or an amber kind of ambery purple color it's really quite special and i think that level of 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 visual engagement with your with your drink mm-hmm. is something that that's quite special and i think people are missing out in terms of uh just concentrating on the milk drinks instead of going over mm-hmm. to paper filtered coffee um i think we can we can get a lot of similarities in coffee and tea that way
1: where are you, where are you on cold brew i
0: really like <laughs> cold brew actually um so i think I've experimented a bit with cold brew. Uh, so there's, there's two ways. There's the slow drip method, uh, which I'm not a big fan of personally. Uh, I think regardless of the bean that you... It's, it's good commercially because regardless of the bean that you're using, whether it's super dark or super light or re- very expensive or very cheap, the, the, the slow drip cold brew method, which I think takes like 12 hours to make, it essentially neutralizes all of the acidity in the coffee. Uh, And it's acidity that actually creates some of those more complex nuanced notes that people really enjoy. Mm. And they kind of sip it and they think, hmm, this doesn't taste like Starbucks or something. This tastes different. It's got a bit of a bite, a bit of sharpness to it. Um, So it's actually the acidity that creates that kind of interesting reaction from people. So I'm not a fan of that uh, because I'm a fan if you're using really shitty coffee. But if you're using very good, it's just a waste. But what I am a fan of is something called Japanese iced tea. Uh, sorry, Japanese iced coffee, which is an awesome uh, drink. Have you ever tried it? Nope. It's absolutely fantastic. very easy to make at home. Uh, you just get a paper filter, make it as a hot coffee, but you just have a have a vessel of ice underneath. So you're brewing it hot, but then super cooling it, mm. as, it as it drops in. And what you're doing is you're locking in, well, what you're meant to do. Uh, what we think it's doing is you're locking in those volatile compounds in terms of acidity and sweetness, uh, and kind of florality as well. The florality of some of these coffees, like a, an Esmeralda Geisha coffee uh, from Panama, is, is just insane. It tastes like, like jasmine. It's the most extraordinary taste ever. And when you're brewing it, it just fills the room with this jasmine note. It's really special. Um, have you ever tried Esmeralda Geisha?
1: Not knowingly.
0: I shall. Uh, uh, do you know a, a gentleman called Amir Gel by any chance uh, from Difference Coffee Company? No. Nope. I shall make an introduction if you're <laughs> if if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, he's a he's an awesome awesome guy and kind of does a similar thing to what Jamil does, but he mm-hmm. champions essentially the best coffees in the world. Uh, so he goes to uh, coffee auctions uh, that are award winning and purchases the number one lot in every single one of those auctions. And provides them to people at, at a, a fairly fairly decent price. Um, so I, I'll definitely make mm-hmm. an introduction after this after after this uh, this episode. Uh, it'll be interesting to see your your impressions <laughs> on some of the stuff. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of that kind of cold brew, I like it. I think it's good. I think it's nice to drink on a hot day. But you're right. When things are cold, your taste buds just don't work uh, as they should do, and it's a tough one. Um, how how yeah. have you? work to kind of counteract that or is there a way to counteract that
1: um so i guess on the on the one hand uh that coolness can be a good thing so we've been working on um kind of ice creams for the elderly uh and those mm. the dementia um who may not have many taste buds or smell receptors left at all right. uh, like my mother and uh, her last few months of dementia a few years ago uh, the only thing she would eat was ice cream and but that's kind of really unhealthy so we've been working with a chef to try and make uh nutritionally beneficial ice creams to play wow. to that cool temperature um and then, and it seems to be you know somehow just fundamentally rewarding that cool stuff is cross species just like a cool tongue yeah there's, there's no you know, energy benefit there's no do we know why? No. Sort a of mystery it's just an observation really that um sort of maybe just you know is it just so things with sort of, thermal regulation? Well probably not just your tongue's not big enough to make much of a difference but there is something you know, mysterious, fundamentally rewarding nature of having a cold tongue. Mm. Interesting. Uh, um, and uh otherwise, you know, uh otherwise thinking about you know, other ways of I mean I suppose from the from the coffee case maybe if the volatiles do evaporate off while the coffee is hot, then cooling it down quickly does help, as you say, so to, to trap some of those things that would otherwise be in the atmosphere, in the yeah. air uh, around the, the coffee brewing process to stay in the drink and hopefully be uh, revealed uh, by the drinker uh, in the mouth. Um, and the other thing, I suppose, is to think about could we design foods fundamentally differently? If so so many of the foods that we're familiar with and like are kind of the way that they are just as an accident of history or something. Yeah. Uh you know I guess uh, you know the is the, the really kind of a uh a modified sandwich and the sandwich is only a sandwich there because if you know the Earl of Sandwich didn't want to get his hands greasy at the at the card <laughs> table. Um but is that really the best way to design those things to titillate the taste buds and deliver flavour experience? Maybe not. So could we sort of you know, re engineer foods Knowing what we do know now about how the senses work and connect, um, so that you know, uh, you know, the different senses are stimulated more effectively, uh, so for example, this is one of the reasons why I think maybe something like this molecular fork that we have the filter paper near the tines, mm. you can, uh, maybe it would make sense you know, to put your truffle oil on that so that every time you bring the fork to your mouth, you smell the truffle. But you're not gobbling up this, you know, very expensive thing that's really lost once it goes in your mouth and is, is into your stomach. There's no benefit there. And that would be kind of a way of engineering differently to make sure, you know, uh, that th- those elements that best stimulate each of our senses are kind of where they should be. Mm. Um, through to so the it's a thing. way of
0: counteracting temperature, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, uh, potentially. say, well, no, uh, given if if cold temperature is fundamentally rewarding and yet we know that it suppresses your ability to taste so you've got so much more sugar and stuff then um uh can we either sort of separate the components or do something to uh, uh to, to to deliver all of these things yeah which may not be possible in a, in a, in a traditional food uh form uh and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, brilliant. It's got a. The the fact is that you know the same the things that we like that are cold cold soft drinks, the ice cream, all sort of packed full of sugar because we can't taste it. Mm. So it's you know a terribly designed. is a terrible <laughs> design feature that we like the cold stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, and surely we should like everything uh, hot. But no, we have this fundamental reward to cold, so we have to yeah maybe think differently. Outside the box no, or outside the mouth about, um, yeah, I don't have any solutions really to that one uh, as such as yet. Um.
0: No, I think the, uh, I, I, actually the, the fork idea uh, with uh, using that fork and use in, in, in having cold stuff and, and using the fork as a way to transmit those, the, those uh, the smell compounds is actually, that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. to me. Um, I, I wonder, uh, Charles, h- how have you also, what, what what does your research say in terms of sight and sound? Uh, what what have you found in that realm?
1: So when we th- look for sort of definitions of taste and flavour, uh, then it seems to be sort of, you know, the tongue, taste, uh, gas- gustation, we call it, sort of retronasal smell, the aroma's mm. coming out of the back of the mouth. And maybe the trigeminal sense, kind of the pungency of ginger and pepper and the burn of chilli and cooling of menthol. That's all that flavour really is. It's those two or three senses brought together. Um, sight and sound don't really come into the definition um, of flavour. And yet I think they're very important in sort of helping to set our flavour expectations. And for me, uh, in the gastrophysics, a lot of it's around really this idea that we never put anything in our mouth without our brain having predicted what it is do we like it is it energy dense mm. uh, and those expectations about taste and flavor very often come from what things look like. We use color as a cue to say is the fruit ripe and sweet or green and sour and acidic um We use the you know the color of the the wine to figure out what we think we're going to be tasting and smelling mm. um And then when we actually do come to taste unless we're in one of these kind of maybe almost curated tasting experiences like the tea ceremony or uh, so then we'll periodically we'll check our taste buds say is that what i expected i was going to taste and if it's more or less Mm. what i thought i was going to taste i live in the world of my expectations not in the world of my experience um and that's why color cues can play such a, a an important role um so we did a lot of work you know changing the color of foods and drinks uh, and showing how it can on the one hand fool you know the white even the wine experts into thinking uh, uh, a white wine is rose wine with a few mm. drops of you know red food dye to make it look pink um it was that issue of color that really got me started in food with Unilever all those years ago when they had some fruit teas that would you know look vibrant purples and, and different colors they would smell great but when you tasted them it was just like disappointing didn't taste of anything. Right. So you had this great colour, sending a great flavour expectation, followed up by this orthonasal sniff smell, and then you tasted, and yeah, it's just thin, just empty, not didn't follow through, and the answer being you just add some sugar, <laughs> and suddenly it, yeah, 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 it all makes yeah, sense yeah. To, to, to the brain and the palate. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, so we're, um, and over the years, from our first experiments with you know fruit drinks, fruit teas back in 2006 now, we've been uh, going across a whole range of food and drink products, then thinking about almost the colour in history and sort of special colours of foods like blue that becomes very popular these days, mm. um, but more for its Instagrammability, yeah, than for any taste expectations say. it might set, um, To other sort of symbolic colours of white and black associated with the funerals and, and, and mm. marriages and such like. Um, uh, and then going beyond the color of the food where we started and drink to say what about the color of the packaging the cup the plate the bowl the coffee cup for example we've been doing studies showing you can set expectations in the coffee experts of acidity or sweetness pink pink outside of a coffee cup your brain's automatically thinking of sweet notes green or yellow and the is expectation is set of that and that will can Mm. follow through depending on the bean and the roast um to color of plates to color of the environment in which we eat and drink so we've done you know, big tasting events with uh one of that three thousand people in london in 2014 with campo viejo wow. color lab giving them a a, a black tasting glass of rioca uh, and then changing the room lights from green to white to red light and green lighting in the room brings out acidity freshness red lighting in the room not in your drink brings out sweet and fruity notes people like the thing more. Wow, uh, no. And so it's so it's gone. Colour of packaging, colour wherever it appears, uh seems to impact uh us in in ways it sort of makes no sense. Why would changing the colour of a can of Coke or 7up change the taste of the drink inside? Yeah. Well, because maybe that's all your visual system sees is the can on the outside. If you put the can to your lips, you never actually see the liquid. And yeah. so you sort of get this visual dominance of flavours from the from the um packaging. And as we've also found from the plateware that was very surprising when we first found it eleven years ago that white plates made you know, a strawberry dessert taste sweeter than the same dessert served to the same people on the same day from a black plate. How could that be? That plate color could change taste, wow. and yet it did. And, and many studies since have, have sort of backed that up. Um, so anyway, I think color is hugely important. Sound—it's probably the forgotten flavor sense. Um, it's certainly the last one that chefs I think think about, but. I think it is very important and again at all stages of our interaction with food it's very important in terms of crispy, crunchy, crackly, creamy, carbonated, the things that we like in snack foods they all make noise but noise has no value in terms of nutrients but we love so why do we love it? Um, It's important there um, in delivering what we think is crispy, crackly, crunchy is really about the sound as much as it is about what we're feeling between our teeth um, through to the sounds of preparation. I think you know the sizzle of the uh, of the steak on the hot plate, the grinding of the coffee beans. Uh, those are all setting expectations about taste that again will anchor the experience thereafter. And We've done stuff, we you know with um uh, an espresso coffee makers, changing the sound of the grinding and the uh, and showing that can change people's perception of the uh, sort of bitterness and, and roughness mm. uh, of the drink. Um through then to you know the sounds of the environments where we eat and drink that are so noisy that maybe we can't taste in many restaurants that are so noisy in airplanes that we all gravitate towards tomato juice because that seems to stand up to the noise yeah. of the airplane bizarrely um and then in, in in a lot of our work these days we're doing or we sort of look at sonic seasoning which is this notion that uh Certain sounds seem to correspond or go together with certain tastes. Tinkling high-pitched piano, people associate with sweetness. Very low-pitched sounds, brass instruments, people associate with bitterness. Mm. Uh, Sour music has its own uh, kind of musical menu. Salty we've got, spicy, creamy. um, And, yeah, so we've been building up these kind of musical menus of sonic properties and musical match menus of different Fantastic. taste properties. And they're either looking for music already pre-composed that has those qualities, very low in pitch and, uh, and brassy, uh, through to now working with composers and sound designers, producers to, uh, to make soundscapes that match, uh, or bring out a dominant element in a taste maybe tune the taste you might say or, or modulate it mm, I'm um sure uh, uh, or and even given that for many complex tastes like for coffee or for chocolate or for wine or whiskey they're not just one thing there's like a whole taste journey that goes on from the initial nosing through tasting aftertaste, um and, and kind of creating soundscapes and musical compositions that that evolve with that evolving taste profile and so hopefully enable the taster to get more out of their drink um, and maybe accentuate the more pleasurable notes and perhaps suppress a little the notes that some people might find less uh, so. And uh, yeah, so having a lot of fun doing that. And it's, it's one of the things that, you know, when I started out doing the psychology, they, uh, my parents would say, you know, it's just. Mm-hmm. We don't need a psychologist to tell us that's bleeding obvious <laughs> uh, um, and, and, that's, and that's been the way it has been with the things like the sound of the sea where playing the sounds of the sea makes seafood taste better no one sure. would have anticipated that would work in, in advance but after it came out and we talked about it people said what's well, kind of obvious isn't it duh uh what else is yeah. going to happen whereas the sonic seasoning the idea that music is matched to and can enhance particular tastes is something that's bizarre why, why would that be true i don't believe it yeah is that, um, and that's sort of great then for me to do something where it's not intuitively obvious. Even when you know about it, you might not believe it. It doesn't work on everybody all of the time, certainly. But for those who it does, when they take a cup of, you know, uh, black coffee, we play the sweet music, the bitter music, it's like, oh my God, it tastes different.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, How can that be? It makes no sense at all. Um, and it's something that, you know, that people like the Italian futurists have, have intuited you know a century ago the 1930s they were doing talking about syntactalismo and synolfatismo and sin auditiva they thought there was a synesthetic connection between tastes and sounds and textures and and stuff and they were playing the space and now a century later we've kind of being able to systematically scientifically study these surprising connections uh figure out what the key attributes are and then work with the creatives of the kitchen of the of the music to put these things together in, in new and exciting and innovative uh, intriguing uh, ways and create these kind of multi-sensory experiences that engage people because they are so surprising um, and which you know, may ultimately again just possibly have a sort of well-being outcome in terms of you know could you play sweet music all day long or at mealtimes especially and reduce the sugar while keeping the taste experience Yeah yeah the same. Yeah, yeah
0: this is what I was thinking yeah Yeah, yeah, it's kind of boosting the the potential nutritional aspect of food by reducing the amount of of rubbish that people can eat and and making them feel as though that they
1: are. Uh, And that's why it's been tried in one cafe in Beijing, this idea of sort of sonic sweeteners. Um, But we still don't know whether how long the effects would last. And if you you had sweet music at lunchtime for a whole year, maybe it'd work the first week, but after a couple of months, your brain would say, hold on a minute. When I hear those tinkling high hats, I know... (laughs) I'm being shortchanged uh, and eat more in, in much the way that you know. Sometimes you know, with those low-calorie uh, meals, they they lead to a weight loss in the short term. But your brain's you know, not stupid, uh, and you end up it eating more on. Of them. Yeah. So, and in this case, who knows whether the Sonic seasoning is a, a long-lasting, a long or or short-lasting intervention? It's certainly, fun in the short term, but I'm optimistic and hopeful that it would have a a longer-term uh, a benefit too. Hopefully,
0: hopefully. I mean, I think I have, I have probably two more questions. Mm. Um, so you you mentioned um, earlier in terms of, I think uh, actually, I'll just tell you a couple of things I tried myself. So uh, I've 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 actually got these mugs in different colours. Uh, so it's uh, made by a company called Not Neutral, uh, and uh, I think they're an architectural company mm-hmm. uh, that decided to try and design a line of cups for a very well known American coffee company called intelligentsia um and uh, i i did a interview with them about how and why they decided to design the cup the way that they did and it's interesting because actually almost entire the the entire aspect of their design was based around um the ergonomics uh of the cup and and the the experience of of holding it and and uh, they 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 kind of spoke a little bit about the thickness of the rim as well. But again, it was more about comfortability as opposed to taste. Because uh, I, 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 even in today, I think it's quite an unusual idea to suggest that, you know, uh, the color of something can or, or the or the feed of something can can influence the the taste and the flavor of whatever you're consuming. Um, so I thought, you know what, actually, I've got the same cup and I've got it in different colors. Let me see if this makes a difference. And this was after I read gastrophysics. <laughs> Um, So I I had the same coffee in this white mug and I had another one in black. And the sweetness and the sharpness of the coffee was unbelievably heightened in the white mug. Uh, It was the strangest fucking thing I've ever had. It was weird. Uh, there, There was another thing that we did at this coffee tasting. And I'm just wondering if you could tell me what you think is going on here because both myself and my and, and a friend of mine, we were totally stumped. It didn't really work for him, but it did work for me. So we were told to have like an 80% dark chocolate. Um, and there were two squares of Velcro. One was the soft Velcro mm-hmm. and the other one was the really sharp prickly Velcro. And while we were eating it, we were told to stroke the soft Velcro. Mm-hmm. And we thought we were being told to do this because the guy wanted us to look silly uh but uh, apparently when you stroke and it worked for me when you stroke the soft velcro it makes the the dark chocolate taste sweeter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and then when you when i stroked the 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 sharp prickly one it made it taste very bitter and yep. and quite nasty actually um do, do, is this something that you've yeah, played with uh, then, uh, if you have so is this, it
1: absolutely uh both of those things so um yeah, the white versus black plate. I uh, think the black plate seems to bring out uh, the bitterness. Um, yeah, I mean, so, when I read
0: it in the book, I, I, had, to, I had to try it.
1: it. Um, and for the, uh, for the Velcro, we often use um, sort of satin silk versus sandpaper, but Velcro mm. can work as well. Um, and we've tried it now with um, Thai green curry, with ginger biscuits, with coffee, with wine, with whiskey, um, and feeling that rougher texture. Uh, does bring out the rougher notes, maybe the more bitterness, and something soft, satiny, silky will bring out the sweeter uh, 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 notes, perhaps a creaminess as well. Um, and, and you're right to say, so this is, has been part of the um, Gastrophysics Chef's Table at Chef uh, Joseph Hughes' restaurant. Um, for for a couple of years now we have like a whiskey course or was a whiskey course the drink sometimes changes um that you rub with sandpaper he's got like a a, what he calls a marinetti cube which is marinetti was the the the, the futurist par excellence who wrote the futurist cookbook in the 1930s and and two sides of this cube are um velcro two of sandpaper two of, of velvet and the idea is you have your whiskey and you just feel the different sides of the cube change the texture and see whether it changes the taste um and that's left to the end of the meal because it's one right. that um works on some people but not all and we see that mm. where some of the other things like the sonic sweeteners would work on your, virtually everybody uh and some of the other things work virtually everybody this kind of texture touch syntactalismo, marinetti called it is um some people get it others don't find much difference and i think sort of two mm. levels the one thing you say okay if you had to describe the taste of whatever you're having now in terms of one of these textures which one would it be yeah. and there's a certain natural affinity there and then okay now taste the thing and rub the material does it change and uh, maybe i don't know a quarter of people get something there um so uh why well, that should be so why well, it should be different that only some people get some of these things and everyone seems to get others we don't know as yet uh but i think this sort of synesthetic matching of, of, of texture to taste is a a, a real thing or can be we've done it with coffee cups uh, both having people rub coffee sandpaper velvet squares while tasting coffee and then we managed to saw some uh scandy scandy uh figure i think it's coffee cups that come in a very right. smooth or a rough texture uh designed that way and showed the same effect there uh and we've done it with wine too and we've been lucky enough to work with riko koneko who's like a, a potter from the midlands who makes a lot of the pot plates ware for the fat duck restaurant um wow. and she took these findings about texture and taste and we had these you know studies with them Covering plates with sandpaper and a bit of glue, and then oh my giving God. people ginger biscuits. And yes, they do become more gingery and more pungent. And she took the research and then she created this beautiful plate, um, bowl, I should say, that's very heavy. And the idea is you have Thai mm. green carry out of this bowl, you hold it in your hands, and the underside of the bowl is very rough, like sandpaper. Wow. But it's a beautifully designed object created. Uh, but this is what I think might be the, some of the world's first. Uh, Uh, perceptually enhanced plateware designed to bring Mm. out the pungency as you feel the roughness under the plate and that will bring out the pungency of the ginger and the galangal in the dish um, and hopefully enhance your experience Uh, and yeah so this is sort of you know I've got other colleagues who are doing 3D printed uh, coffee cups over in Poland and again Mm. they're combining different colours on the outside with different sort of texture patterns Um, have raised 3D printed dots in order to hopefully match or accentuate uh, uh, different notes in the taste. Uh, and and ultimately given, I think, and we've tried it with wine glasses that have you know, etched lips, uh, but given we do live in different taste worlds, maybe yep. we should all be try always trying to think about how can we offer people kind of a range of gastrophysics solutions, if you will, uh, to optimize their taste experience. Mm. Then I'm interested in this idea of having like a cups or glasses that where half the lip is etched rough Hmm. and The other half is smooth, and then cool. you turn the glass around, and then depending on which surface your lip felt, bring out this or that note uh, to taste, as it were.
0: Very cool, very cool. I, I I like the sound of that. Actually, it's it's kind of the ability for the individual to choose what 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 kind of thing that they want. Um, the, the those plates that you were just talking about are those available to buy, kind of, uh, uh, or are they only for restaurants?
1: Um, only for restaurants um yes and so you yeah, know they were we launched them at euro Kuchino, a big sort of trade fair in 2018 um and i've got a set here at home uh but yeah i'm not sure even if you if they're still available so kind of, i mean that's a design concept sure um but sadly <laughs> uh, not in commercial uh production um which is often a thing in this space of you know uh i sort of have to work between what designers can create and manufacture and, and uh, at scale and you know what you'd like. And sometimes mm. you know, we have to play either play with the sandpaper or make our own sandpaper plates, which no one would want to buy, or yeah. Yeah, try and sure. find the kind of things that designers have intuitively stumbled on or created and say what does that do to the tasting experience? And we're we'll kind of sit somewhere in the middle there. Um I think it's a very hard space. Like even with um we work a bit with Studio William who make um very nice kind of cutlery and they have mm. a range of textured spoons that you can buy in Selfridges and elsewhere with mm. ripples and dimples and, um, but to make those spoons, uh, the silversmith who was saying, you know, I sort of you know, battered, bashed some bits of metal, rubbed them with my tongue, thought that felt interesting and then we made them, <laughs> but to make them the minimum print run is like 700 of these things and you can make the mould, right. and so it's a huge investment Yeah, uh, so, so yeah it. The, the process isn't there really to to do this sort of uh prototyping or exploration Mm. maybe 3d printing is the answer but then maybe 3d printing doesn't give you the material qualities you want to cold hard metal Um.
0: yeah i mean there is there are processes available now that many silversmiths and 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 jewelry makers are using to 3d print so there's a there's a workshop in london i think it's called stephen einhorn uh, in islington uh, that are able to 3D print jewelry now uh, out of gold, platinum, silver, uh, very, mm-hmm. very intricate extraordinary designs um, uh, that I've recently been, uh, been been working with I, I purchase. I, I, I've, I've been a client of Stephen Einhorn for a while yeah. now um wearing and, a bit of uh, bling are you yeah yeah, yeah yeah or or the or the other half rather uh, destroying <laughs> destroying destroying my credit card but uh, <laughs> but um <coughs> but, uh, but yeah no their, their stuff is really extraordinary actually the way that they've been able to do it uh, and the technology involved mm-hmm. is actually not not as as complicated as i think many people would think it would be and it's quite it's, it's quite straightforward uh, the way that it works mm. um but um I, I wonder, in, in, in talking about kind of technological advancements and the way that things are moving forward, you kind of, uh, you know, uh, touched upon 3D printing there. I wonder, uh, Charles, all of these years working in the space and doing the research that you've done and, and finding actually some really fascinating things that restaurants are now actively uh, doing. And I mean, the work that you did with Heston as well is is something that has kind of resounded and created ripples within the entire restaurant world Um you know, there's very few places that you can walk into now that kind of brand themselves as gastro pubs, uh, where there isn't something that maybe you and Heston worked on uh, together. So, you know, you've worked on these very fascinating things. But I wonder now, looking to the future, what are you excited for in the future in this space? Um, and what do you feel as though needs more effort, more investment, more funding?
1: So yeah, I have been, I think, in hindsight, lucky to uh, have worked with chefs whose star has arisen, people like uh, Heston, um, and uh, and to see how you know some of the experiments we were doing in the lab in Oxford over the years have you know kind of ended up being the source of inspiration for these for these dishes and experiences. And I think you know looking back now, the sound of the sea was the one that uh, probably has, has has rippled furthest, as it were. Um, and that's maybe one of the first examples of sort of technology being brought to the dining table. Mm. Just an MP3 player in a conch shell, nothing more than that, but probably one of the first times, um, and done in a way not to distract or merely to entertain, but to hopefully to enhance the tasting experience through technology. That's sort of an area I'm I'm, I'm very interested in at, at the moment and seeing progress. How else can you take probably ubiquitous technology? So I don't think people are at a stage where they want to buy a bit of gadget. For the dining table, for the living room, yes, but for the, for the dinner table, we're not there yet. So it's got to be the, you know, the smartphones and the tablets. How can those things be repositioned to deliver exciting, enhanced experiences at home? How can we take um I mean, uh, uh, you know, from from develop our work on sonic seasoning so it's not just something that you have at a, a restaurant or an experiential event, but which you could you know, use in your own home because you wanted to cut your sugar or salt intake without compromising on taste um, and how could we I, 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 you mentioned the EQ earlier um, I, I have this, this notion of some sort of a tasty cue I want to call it which is mm. I know that the more you like whatever you're listening to the more you like whatever you're tasting I also know that there's certain sounds that will bring out sweet salty bitter sour umami and so on um so could I combine those two things in and, and, and other ways of either filtering the music on your mp3 player or your favourite playlists or selecting from amongst the artists you like to listen to at the moment, the ones that are mm. sweetest and create yeah. these kind of highly liked but also uh, sonically seasoned playlists. Um, and that would be one, one of the ways forward. So I think that's, that's really exciting to see where that goes and what's being done. Um, and uh, what else we're looking at? Uh, I, I, I guess I'm really interested in uh, the sort of paradox in a way of, of, of um, how it can be that we're not really very good at tasting the stuff that we need to taste, as it were. So the mm. fact that the sweetness was all drawn to or told it's very bad, but in fact, sweetness is a very pure, poor cue to energy in fruits. Mm. Um, whereas things like you know potatoes and pasta things that are very energy dense we don't really have a taste mm. so why is it that you know if we if we learn to love the smell of vanilla because we associate it with sweetness we learn to love strawberry and caramel because of the sweetness it normally predicts why don't we learn to love the smell of potatoes yeah um and as far as, or rice and as far as i can tell we don't really It doesn't have that no you know, come hither quality the other sweet things do so why is that um and that's uh yeah uh, hopefully a, a challenging topic around the sorts of things we might wish that we could taste the sort of things that we do actually taste and the mismatch therein and how we may be able to resolve that in ways that may you know, maybe speak to healthier food you know behaviors moving forward that will probably be trialed i think you know, through the collaborations with these innovative chefs and and, and mixologists but then hopefully rolled out to create sort of healthier and more sustainable options that are built around the science of gastrophysics but for people at home uh, on an everyday basis
0: it's interesting actually that you mentioned the thing about potatoes and, and, and and rice and and pasta and stuff something that we really love and we really enjoy but doesn't necessarily have that as you say the come hither quality um Again, actually, a friend I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Spencer Hyman, uh, who uh, was telling me about the recent research on uh, taste bud discovery uh, that we have in our throat and in our stomach, uh, which I thought was really interesting, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's kind of the idea of that second stomach uh, thing that we have, right, where there's always there always seems to be room for dessert. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how much we've eaten, and and maybe maybe there's a potential link between the, the the way that our body really likes really starchy carb-heavy stuff, even though it doesn't have that that smell. Maybe those taste buds are doing because I don't think we actually know why we have taste buds mm. in our throat and in our stomach.
1: Mm. Well, maybe they, you know they're they're providing feedback about uh, I guess the sort of energy density and appropriateness of stuff things that we have mm. eaten and started to digest. Uh, just don't give us a conscious sensation um but st- yeah but still i think you know uh even when we we go going the opposite way even when things that maybe didn't taste strange when we on the way down but which poison us we get, mm. Ill, get sick or ill uh that's sort of learned taste aversion. we are very good our brains are very good at learning to avoid and find horrible the taste and smell of things that we think made us sick um so why wouldn't that also work for or, or for 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 these other carbohydrates? Um, is it just that they haven't been around for long enough for our taste buds to evolve? Mm. Uh, what's going on? But just, it just feels like some interesting sort of space in there of um, uh, around sort of nutrients and sensing and, uh, and certainly uh, I mean um, uh, I've got a folder of stuff around uh, the tongue map and you know, all the other places we can taste. And so, mm. there's sort of throat sensations you get from things like uh, extra virgin olive oil is mm. one cough or two. There's like a sensation there that's not one of the five tastes, mm. but ex- the higher the quality, the more th- it'll be a two cough olive oil, not one, and a tasting. So, it stimulates the throat in sort of a taste like way, but which sense is that? Is that smell? Is it taste? Is it yeah. sixth taste? Is it trigeminal? Uh, no. What else might there be still mm. left to discover? inside
0: uh, uh uh the mouth yeah no it's it's I, I mean for me personally i'm very excited uh to kind of see where this moves mm. uh and also where your research uh moves as well because it's uh it's uh, it's interesting like the, the same way i guess in the formula one world where you see you know great innovations in formula one kind of eventually over the years whittle down into you know a Ford focus or something mm. like that I've seen your research the same way kind of whittled down into, you know, every other restaurant that you walk mm. into. Uh, so for me, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to talk to you today. Um, and uh, thank you again for your time. It really means a lot. I feel I, I really feel genuinely enriched. So thank <laughs> you for your time. It, It, uh, right. it means a lot.